Hello and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast. I said particular good, not particularly good. It's a name, not a claim. Today we are here at St. Bernard School of Theology and Ministry with Father Isaac Slater, who comes to us from the Abbey of the Genesee, which is a Trappist monastery in Pafard, New York. So, Father Isaac, welcome. Thank you very much. Father Isaac is um, a Cistercian monk of the Strict Order, which is or sometimes colloquially called the Trappist. The most famous Cistercian known to U.S. people is Thomas Merton. The Cistercians were partially founded by Bernard of Clairvaux, who is also the patron of our school, so we have that in common. So we're here with Father Isaac to talk about his life and work, uh, but also about a book he wrote called Beyond Measure, The Poetics of the Image in Bernard of Clairvaux. So we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Heather and I have gotten to know Father Isaac over the past year, and I've uh, enjoyed many conversations on a winding variety of topics, and we hope we can replicate that today on this podcast. Uh, but the first question I want to ask you is the standard question for those who have chosen the cloistered path. Um, how did you become a Cistercian monk? What drew you to the monastic life, and specifically the Cistercian monastic life? Well, I think I'm still working on becoming a Cistercian monk, but... What drew me, I don't know, I mean, the monastery is kind of like living in a sonnet. That's an example. We've got all of these rules and regulations and measures, but in a good sonnet, you have a feeling of great freedom and spaciousness. And that's what it's like in the monastery, that you have structure and and form, but it's in the service of creating this freedom. And uh, you're able to give yourself and express yourself in a way somehow that's uh, supported by the structure of the life, but very free. So it's like the image that I come back to is that of a trellis in a garden. You have a climbing hydrangea, for example, and it needs, it would just be a clump on the ground unless it had that ladder to climb up and resist and spread out. It can reach its full articulation. And so all of the the structure and the kind of regime of a sort of formal life where you have a regular schedule and, you know, many limitations on your life allow certain people who are called to that that life to really spread out in a way that they couldn't otherwise. Beautiful, thank you. Related to your previous and continued life as a poet, there's a similar structure and beauty within structure in a poem. Is that fair? Yeah, and embrace of limitation too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, art in whatever form, whether it's, it's poetry or, or painting, it's anchored in the particular and in the concrete and somehow one way or the other in the everyday. And I think monastic life is just one particularly radical embrace of the limited, embrace of limitation. And I think that's one of the most countercultural and prophetic elements of monastic life today in the Western world, is that embrace of one particular place, one group of brothers for life. And as soon as you enter, as soon as you make that vow to live in this place for life, then immediately death shows up on your horizon in a new way. You know, it's like once you've started the marathon, the finish line becomes present to you in a way that it wasn't when you were just thinking about doing the race. Now you're in the race. The finish line is very real. It's 26 miles away still, and you've got to get there. (laughs) And in the monastic life, if death is... uh, the finish line, maybe you're not in such a hurry to reach it, <laughs> but it uh, clarifies your life as a finite reality. That is just so illuminating, like, oh, I only have one life. It's going to have this shape. It's going to be in these buildings. 
you know what I mean? I'll have X number of years. And then, so then how do I want to live? Mm. You know, and it, it kind of frees that up in you. It makes things very real. Uh, and hopefully gradually working with the limits day in, day out, noticing your tendency to escape in various ways from the realities of your everyday life, checking those, learning to stay within limitation, you find that the limitations are actually the possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very similar to uh, art as well. So I'm guessing you have lots of conversations about what this looks like and the challenges. And is that something when you're talking to your brothers that resonates with most people? Or are there different sort of attitudes that you see towards the same life that you're sort of signing on for. Just getting to know you briefly, you strike me as a very free person in general. Like you have a lot of interests. You don't feel constrained in a way that you might think of for a, a Trappist. And that's like coming from someone who literally has only met them in passing aside from you. So yeah, are there other ways that people think about their vocations? What, other than you're going to die? Right. <laughs> yeah, but that's it was not such a positive my, spin. I know, right? <laughs> that's not always my first sales pitch in the Novitiate, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> See, my, my other job is uh, taking care of the older monks in the infirmary, right? So that's why I have these two horizons these of the, yeah. Yeah, the beginning and, and the end. Uh, so that maybe they're just fused in my own warped uh, perception of things, and I'm scaring off vocations. <laughs> <laughs> now, that sounded but, very insightful to me. Yeah. I think that sooner or later, yeah, it's different to answer your question. It's different for each person exactly what what draws them. And the reasons that you come in with, your motivations when you start are not the same as they are 20 years later, 30 years later. Yeah. You know, but there's an interesting thing. There's this great saying of one of the Desert Fathers that I often come back to. And this monk goes to the Abba Abraham and says, you know, I weave my baskets and earn some money and then I give the money away to the poor. But I think that I'm only doing that so that people see me and praise me for being so charitable. Should I stop giving the money? And Abraham says, well, no, because for one thing, that poor person needs the money. And, you know, his family not going hungry is more important than your scruples. And for another thing, performance purifies the motive performance purifies the motive. So you may start off on a course with very mixed motives that are not at all pure, but if you're doing the right thing over and over again, day in, day out, it works retroactively on you to solidify and clarify your motive. And I think that's what happens in, in monastic life. You show up, you struggle to get out of bed at three o'clock in the morning and go to vigils. You do your best at work. You try to get along with the other people that you don't like. And hopefully over time, that, that forms you. It also frees you from the tyranny of your own whims, your own self-will. And, and that's a central part of the monastic program, too, is that understanding that we're all kind of attached rather fiercely to our own self-will, our own prejudices, our own conditioning, our own defenses. And the objectivity of the monastic life can set us free from that gradually. That's great. I want to ask you something else about your entry to monastic life, which is just the story of your name. Father Isaac, you chose Isaac, and we've talked about this, but I just wanted to see if you'd tell that story about how you came to your monastic name. So I took the name Isaac for Isaac of Syria, or Isaac of Nineveh, who's not so well known in the West, but in Eastern Orthodox circles, many consider him the greatest mystical theologian of all time. 
And he makes an appearance in Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, at multiple strategic points. And one of the ways he turns up is his writings turn up. Uh, the elder Zosima, who's kind of the, one of the lead protagonists in the story of the Brothers Karamazov, gives this beautiful discourse on the man of mercy, the ideal of the man of mercy, who prays even for the suicides, who prays even for the demons. He's so consumed with the sense of God's unconditional love. And this is kind of the ideal that's the foil for contemporary nihilism uh, in Dostoevsky's presentation in the book. So that sermon is actually lifted from the writings of Isaac of Syria and put in the mouth of Dostoevsky's character. And the actual text of Isaac's sermons, the physical book, shows up in different key points in the novel as well. So I think I first learned of Isaac in that connection in reading Brothers Karamazov, which is a, a favorite book. And the striking thing, I remember one of the first retreats I made was at a Cistercian monastery, and I happened to be reading something that had a quote from Isaac of Syria that was just pierced me to the core. It was like those words were meant just for me, and you know, and it clarified my vocation. I was very struck, and I, I really have to read more of this Isaac of Syria fellow, but I, I couldn't find his writings. He's not widely translated in English. So I had that in the back of my mind. I actually looked, I was living in Toronto, and I looked at the big university libraries and still couldn't find Isaac of Syria. So then when I finally came to the monastery, I had it in the back of my mind. Well, if they have his writings anywhere, they ought to have them at the monastery. And the very first night that I came to stay at vigils, I had driven through the night. So I had been up all night and was starting, you know. So not only were they reading Isaac of Syria at vigils, but they were reading that very passage that Dostoevsky had put in the lips of the elder Zosima. What a welcome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really, because then I, I just, I was struck to the heart and I felt like, wow, I'm in the right place, clearly. I mean, there's just, God gives you these little signals and you can't read them any other way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. So you said, in the limitations are the possibilities. And I wanted to jump in I on that. I said the limitations are the possibilities. The limitations are the possibilities. Beautiful. I wanted to use that as a segue to your book, uh, Beyond Measure, because that reminds me of things that you are uh, talking about. Because the book is full of limitations. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not at all. No, I was thinking of, you framed the book as a surprise about how often Bernard stresses the way the quality of a person's desire limits and colors his or her imagination of God. And then this principle of love leading to knowledge, to sort of trace that out in, in Bernard's writings, you focus on mediation or how revelation is mediated to humanity by the incarnation of the word and how the humanity of Jesus, along with other creative realities, is perceived differently by human beings depending on their own degree of likeness to him. You bring this through through like the concept of shadow, which is really important, which I have another question about, but this, this idea that what Bernard is seeing in Jesus of Nazareth, but also in the created world, is a limitation that is a possibility. Talk to us about that. Like, How does Bernard's concept of mediation work, and how does he think about the humanity of Christ and its relationship to the mediation of the eternal logos, that kind of thing. Yeah, the humanity of Jesus, the mortal humanity of Jesus, is clearly not a stopping point. Even the, the divine logos, the Son, points to the Father. It's never an end point. It's never a stopping in itself. And so certainly, the mortal humanity of Jesus 
opens into the Christ of the resurrection, opens into the eternal father, you know, we're, we're always moving through and going beyond. And the Cistercians in this golden age when, when Bernard is writing are at this kind of hinge point in history, situated between the, the fathers of the church who, who stress the divinity of Christ, and then after the Cistercians. Cistercians are very incarnational, but they still uh, have that patristic sensibility in the sense of the glorious mysteries. The Cistercians emphasize the mystery of the ascension and the other glorious mysteries. The assumption is the patronal feast of our order. Mm. So the full humanity with the understanding that the humanity is destined for glory. Mm -hmm. It's not going to end in a mortality. So right after the Cistercians, you have the kind of crash and cross spirituality, the Franciscans, that take that incarnational dimension and flesh that out, so to speak, you know, literally give the emphasis to that. Uh, but I, I see Cistercian spiritualities kind of holding together the incarnational and the feeling for the glorious mysteries as well. Um, so that's one of the ways that the Cistercians are this beautiful kind of hinge. Mm. Uh, another related way is Henri de Lubac has this great saying, Bernard was known as the last of the fathers mm -hmm. because of his rhetorical style, and he sounds like John Chrysostom or Augustine or someone like that in the way that he writes and reads the scriptures, interprets the scriptures. And de Lubac tweaked that last of the fathers to say that Bernard was the last of the fathers and the first of the moderns. Mm. And that's a really interesting precision. And I think it's very accurate because there, there are all kinds of ways in which Bernard's sensibility contains the seeds of modernity. His focus on affectivity and the human interior life, the, the subjectivity of the individual experience, and you know the way he writes about the humanity of Jesus, the focus that he puts on experience. And then this is really what the genesis of the book is, uh, the sense that our subjective state colors how we know, you know. And so interestingly here, this is another part of the bridge, seeing the Cistercian moment in the 12th century as a kind of hinge. In the classical world, the insight was just ubiquitous that, you know, only the virtuous person can see the truth. You know, it's in Plato, it's in biblical sources, this, this understanding that my own moral state, because the truth and the good are coherent, my moral state colors what I can know of the truth, and my own vices distort my vision of the truth, and so on. So that kind of understanding was ubiquitous in the classical world. And then modernity, like critical historical thinking, when we think of, of modern thought, post-enlightenment thought, we think of how things like gender, uh, race, other psychosocial factors, color and affect how we see the world, right? And that's why we need to be very careful about, you know, different perspectives and, and limits on how we see things. So both of those kind of start to come together in Bernard, or at least as part of Bernard's modernity is the way that he understands how my subjective state, the degree to which I've conformed my life to Christ, how I've developed spiritually, that's impacting how I imagine God and how accurate my sense of God is at a given stage in my development. I just love that. <laughs> I love also the, the sort of interaction there between objectivity and subjectivity because every sort of moral state is going to be a lens. Our charity affects how we see things. Like it definitely affects our experience of reality. But I think that if 
in casual conversation, the idea that our charity affects our experience of reality is one of distortion. Like we think, oh, you're just seeing the world with rose-colored glasses. Um, you're foolish if you sort of too charitably interpret the reality of the people around you. But the point that Bernard makes and that you beautifully express in the book is this hermeneutic of love is actually more accurate. And like, yes, it's a lens, but it's a clarifying lens. And it is our vices that distort. Um, so if we were to really know someone, to see someone, we have to view them charitably. And that's something that we've talked about before in other contexts. In the Iris Murdoch podcast we just did, she talks about this right. very same thing. Like real attentiveness and real knowledge of something requires charity and charitableness. And um, it's the fantasy. She talks about fantasy instead of vice, but it's the same kind of idea that there's a distortion of the way you're seeing things based on selfishness. Yeah, and that to know the world, you have to be good. <laughs> um, like, it really does require that sort of purification of your, your own vision and motives. And yeah, I just think that's so beautiful and also so true and something that as, I don't know, as you get older, I think becomes more clear, or at least for me, this is being married has helped me <laughs> see this. Because as you get closer to a person, you have loads of opportunities to, you know, use a lens. And if Charles is frustrating me, I can, you know, see the negative or like the patterns or whatever. And when I choose to view him with charity, I feel like I actually do know him better in a real way. And when I choose to use shortcuts or to like allow my vicious uh, habits to sort of cloud my vision, then I'm seeing myself. I'm seeing my own limitations and problems, and I'm not actually relating to him in a real, as real a way. Yeah, and that, that's the fascinating thing. I mean, psychologically, that's something like the dynamic of projection or however we, we speak about it. But Bernard has a sense of this and how it works out in the spiritual life, you know. So He'll use the ancient uh, idea that many different monastic writers uh, have versions of uh, along the lines of how we start off in the spiritual life and we're something like a slave because we're so consumed with fear of punishment, we picture God as a tyrant. And then later we go along somewhat and we become more like a merchant who's governed by self-interest. And because we're governed by self-interest. We imagine that God is also a self-interested merchant who we can do this kind of quid pro quo level of relationship with God, you know. But then we become gradually sons and daughters and only then discover that God is a loving father. And so our imagination of God develops as we ourselves develop, you know, like the scriptures change with you, Gregory the Great said, you know, the scriptures grow with you. And that, that's really what Bernard is, is seeing. Gregory also said, amor ipse notitia est, love itself is knowledge. It's not a way to knowledge, but love itself is knowledge. And uh, the modern philosopher Jean-Luc Marion gives an example of this. You see a, a homeless person there on the street, a, a bundle of rags, and, you know, a uh, busy professional just kind of walks by and doesn't give him a, a second glance. And then, the, you know, the saint walks by, Mother Teresa, and sees the face of Christ in an all-consuming way. The, the difference that which one sees that human being accurately and their, their inner state is coloring what they can see. And even, even with the example, you know, of someone falling in love, as you say, we, we often 
think that, oh, that's just romantic. It's, it's all of distortion, and that's sort of projecting the bright shadow. You just, you know, or however you think of it, but it, it's filled with distortion. But there can be a grain of truth in that experience that you can't access any other way. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it can just, it can be all pure fantasy, or it can also be the truest and closest thing, and that it can be the seed of something very real that, that develops it. It's a much more pleasant way to think about it. <laughs> very good. I, I want to also ask you about his use of shadow language in particular, which I found very intriguing. So for Bernard, human flesh, human existence, humanity is kind of a shadow cast by the true light. But it's also a ductus, this concept you draw into the discussion, by which you mean something that by which we pass on to something else. And you quote him, the first thing is to come to the shadow and then to pass on to that of which it is the shadow. And then he's, he's drawing on Origins, Exegesis of Lamentations 4.20. A spirit before our face is Christ the Lord. In his shadow we live among the pagans. So it's not only we humans that are shadows in the platonic sense that he's using here, but even like we've said, look, we just talked about Jesus of Nazareth, the scripture, the Eucharist are all shadows. And shadow isn't here a negative term for Bernard, but it is reflective of the idea that they are only temporary. They're passing away in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, that would be a good example of Bernard taking, as he so often does, traditional ideas and giving them a fresh spin Mm. or twist. Like he uses origin very creatively in a number of ways. And that language of the shadow, it's insubstantial, everything is changing, only God has being or solidity in any kind of way. Everything is so ephemeral. Um, And that that language of the the shadow and the reality, right? The old, uh, the first covenant is uh, foreshadowing of things that will be fulfilled in the human life of Jesus. And the human mortal life of Jesus is a foreshadowing of Uh, things to come, Mm -hmm. you know, and so that way of speaking is very pregnant as a way of reading the scriptures, suggestive, um, can be problematic depending on how artful the reader is, you know, you you wouldn't want to apply it in a kind of wooden way, but but Bernard is a very creative, ingenious reader of scripture, and so he plays with that language of shadow in all kinds of interesting ways. The shadow can also be a refuge. It can also protect you from the, the light of the sun. We take refuge in the humanity of Jesus because we couldn't bear the direct light of God's glory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's an, another element, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, there's an ambiguity. It's a mercy, right, that, that he came to us in a way that we could receive. But it's not meant to stop there. We're not meant to fixate on the mortal humanity of Jesus. It leads us to glory. I love this sense of invitation and all of that, like the cycle of repeated invitation to go deeper and and to know more. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it's that same idea of the scriptures growing with you. Right. right? We were talking uh, before the mics came on about Simone Weil, or <laughs> we've all been reading Gravity and Grace, and Weil talks about humans as shadows, but in a slightly different way, I think. She talks about them as bearing this kind of gravity and being almost the inverse of light. And then in order to become light, you almost canonically need to empty or die of yourself in order to become light, this kind of idea. What do you think of this idea? How is Vey similar or different to what Bernard is doing here? Well, I'm not at all a, a Vey 
scholar, but I think she shares, I'm sure she read Bernard. There are numerous points in Gravity and Grace where I'm just positive she read Bernard. You know, in this connection, I think it, Bernard's language would have to do with self-will. So I mentioned that monks are trying to get free of the attachment to their own will. And for Vey, you know, God creates the world by withdrawing and making space for there to be creation rather than a positive act. It's imagined as this withdrawal. And human beings are given an I. We're able to say I. That's the one thing that I can do as a human being is, is to say I, to make a mark, to express my will. And in Vey's world of thought, we're given this I in order to renounce it. And this is the way that we become like God, is in renouncing our own will. It's very like Bernard's approach in that respect. That Because for Bernard, the, you know, the shape of sin is arrogance in the sense of arrogation, where we receive everything as a gift. We receive reason and freedom and our being in the image of God, the capacity to love. We receive life from God, but we fall into the trap of claiming it as our own. We take it for granted instead of being grateful, mm -hmm. you know, that we're given the gratuitous, totally gratuitous gift in the hopes that we will respond spontaneously with a gratuitous gift in kind mm -hmm. and be like God in that way and realize ourselves in that way. God takes the risk of giving to us gratuitously, hoping to awaken a gratuitous response, but instead, we take the gifts of freedom, intellect, and so on, and we arrogate them to ourselves. We make our gifts into objects and idols. Sounds so ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something I do most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like how we live. But when you, when you really take a step back. Yeah, uh, that's good. <laughs> Since we ended on idols, I want to I wanna ask you about, uh, in the, later in the book, you have chapters on both uh, Jean-Luc Marion, who's going to talk about the idol, and then also Christopher. And I was curious if you could say about your interaction with those two thinkers and Bernard. So I was intrigued and, and delighted to find both of them in there. They're obviously working from a very different sort of metaphysical frame than, than Bernard was. If Bernard's the first of the moderns, he's still the last of the fathers. <laughs> and they're, they're working from a very different... Um, I don't know as much about Christopher, but I, I would take both of them as being sort of anti-metaphysical in their approach. So how did that play out for you as you looked at their work and Bernard? Well, it might be a little bit analogous to Vey and Iris Murdoch, mm -hmm. who was influenced by Vey, in that for Kristeva, there are only, as I read her, I'm again far from an expert, but she wrote a chapter in a book on Bernard and that piqued my interest. But as I read her, there are only projections. If you're in love, all you have are the reflections of your own desire, and you never make contact with the other in their otherness. It's impossible to bridge the chasm. You only have, you know, the shadows on the cave wall of your own consciousness, and you're, each of us is in this solipsistic cage forever. It's very nihilistic in a way, it seems to me. Whereas for Marion and for Bernard, you mean they are aware, Bernard is aware of the projection uh, mm -hmm. and the distortion but it's something that can be worked through. You, you can actually reach, because God came from the other side, God and his otherness came from the other side, so to speak, and became a human being. He opened a way, he bridged the chasm between us locked in our fantasies and him like the sun on the outside of the cave and Plato's cave allegory. It's as if somebody from the land of the sun came down into the cave and started waking people up and leading them out 
-hmm. beyond the cave, you know. There's a path. You move from the shadows towards the substantial reality. And so the shadows and the images and the projections are profoundly ambiguous for both, but they can become transparent for the believer, for Marion, for Bernard. I mean, it's possible to move through the image to the reality. Uh, and the image can even partake of the reality in some degree. And, and so just about Vey and, and Murdoch, it, it's similar in that Vey writes a lot about fantasy and her language is imagination, by which she seems to mean something like our conditioning or the programming that we have, our defenses and our fantasies and so on. And it's very hard for us to get outside of that. Grace only can liberate us from that. But it is possible in renouncing our own will to come to some kind of connection with God, where Murdoch, as an agnostic or, or atheist, really it doesn't seem that you get very far beyond the projection. That's my sense anyway, is that it's, that would be a difference. There's not a, a transcendent God, and even, right, yeah. even the good seems very fragile yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of how real it is. But there is a a scale still. In The Sovereignty of Good, maybe you'd get more information on this, but just going off of some of her um, novels, it feels like there are characters who are closer to reality than others. Not that that's that hopeful. That's but. the million dollar question is, how can some images be more accurate than others if there isn't some kind of transcendent anchor? Yeah, I would say that there is. <laughs> <laughs> Solved that. <laughs> Something that I was really fascinated by, by chapter three of your book, is this concept of distance, which is there's a, a, a both a closeness, but then a distance, and that the distance created in Christ's ascension is an important thing for the disciples. So I, I suspect this goes back to what you were saying about this distortion emphasis on incarnation and ascension as being tied together but um this distance where they have to almost give up their devotion for the person they were sitting with and have to say farewell uh, in order to see him correctly that there's a certain distance we have to have uh that's not just about that moment but an understanding of difference that leads towards mystical union with Christ Lagos, with the resurrected Lord. Portrayed Bernard talking about both in terms of moving through the humanity of Christ to the divinity of Christ, but also in the beatific vision, continuing to experience the glorified humanity of Christ, which is obviously doesn't fade away in the same way. And perhaps a continuing epictasis in heaven, in the beatific vision. And so, yeah, I just wanted to hear what you have to say about this, this concept of distance and spiritual union, how those go together, and then the ongoing transformation that happens through that. So images are fundamentally ambiguous, but in the Christian revelation, in God, in the universal actually becoming embodied in one particular life in this unique way, it opens a path for the images to mean. It opens a path for images. So there's a kind of pedagogy mm. of shadows. And Christ on the cross is the one acceptable idol. It's the one idol that if you live with it long enough, will turn into an icon and open the way. And that, that's the fascinating thing to me, and it opens the distance. A person begins in the spiritual life 
and they have all kinds of distorted uh, needs and whatever that they're bringing to their practice of the spiritual life. They're in it for consolation or, you know, their motives are very mixed. And if you stay with this pedagogy of images, it will free you over time if you stay with it. If there's a therapeutic value in the image and, and the power of the, the image of the crucified is, is completely unique. And in particular, in the distance that it, it opens up and this idea of distance, I mean, that's another strong connection to Vey, not that she was thinking of Bernard in this necessarily or mm -hmm. likely, but the idea of distance is very important to her. You know, she says at one point, something along the lines of many people go for whatever draws them nearer to God, but I go for whatever makes him more distant. <laughs> because for this reason, that the distance allows you to see the other in their otherness. Mm -hmm. And that to really see another human being as existing, as a free center who has their own agency, who is just as free and just as real as I experience myself to be, that is love. Mm -hmm. That's what Mario says as well, actually, to honor the freedom and the otherness of the other, that requires the, the distance, the painful distance, which we always want to collapse mm -hmm. into making others an extension of our own desires, as a means to meet our needs. Mm -hmm. And that's the challenge fundamentally of a kind of psychological chastity, mm -hmm. an emotional level of, of chastity where you, you respect the, the boundaries, what St. Augustine calls the luminous borders of friendship, the bright borders of friendship, the luminosus limes amicitiae, hmm. he says. So I think the practice of Christian spirituality is a kind of pedagogy in that freeing our desire. That's fascinating. Even that the way that self-knowledge works into that is really interesting because our knowledge of God is only mediated through our own experience, our own encounters with him. So in that sense, when you're first saying that, I was like, well, how can that <laughs> work? But in order to accurately interpret that without misusing the relationships that those like moments of engagement that you have with God, you have to know yourself, which mm -hmm. requires distance, which requires that sort of self-containment in a way. That reminded me of the first time I read Augustine's Confessions, when he talks about being too attached to his friend, and he's like, it was terrible, it was a bad thing, I needed to uh, let go and, you know, not hold on so tightly. Reading that as a freshman in college, I was like, Augustine, no, <laughs> friendship is so important. Like, that's a beautiful <laughs> part of your life. What are you talking about? And then I had this beautiful moment coming back to that book a little later and realizing, like, no, in letting go of attachments, that's how you love people. Like you're not loving your friend if you're smothering them with your own ideas about who they are, what your relationship should be, or how you can use them mm -hmm. in any sort of way to fill in the gaps of what you're not receiving from God in the proper like hierarchical order. That can be such a painful lesson, but is ultimately very positive and is born out of, of charity, of love, and sort of gives you back that thing that you let go of. You know, you're making a space for the other person to be themselves, you know, which is the, that idea of withdrawal, which is very monastic. I mean, this, this idea of withdrawal, of stepping back, of renunciation, to make space for the, the other to be themselves. To know what you love, even. It's hard to do. Yeah, it's extremely important. Codependency, as we would call the other. <laughs> <laughs>
but it can extend to frustration with people you wish would do what you want them to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> Even people you don't think you have that right with or aren't that close to, the frustration that can arise was just like, wait, you're supposed to behave this way, to think this way. What what happened to you're you? You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't really get to say that. No, no, no. <laughs> Respecting the luminous borders is good. Yeah. Something I encountered about St. Bernard when I first came to our school, I was reading about him, was his importance in trouncing Peter of Abelard. And uh, I don't know much about that, but it seemed like he had this fairly like peaceful life, Bernard. And then he felt it very important that he go and make sure that people understood that what Peter Abelard was doing was not right. And so I'm wondering what you know about that, not to... Uh, to mean either Bernard or Avalar, because I really, I, I don't fully understand the debate. I was just curious what insight you have on that the whole thing. Well, in a very general way, Bernard and the monastic tradition that he was expressing was part of a development in Christianity that went back for centuries. And it involved a particular way of reading the scriptures symbolically that was in the way that we've talked about that, that involves a spiritual pedagogy. It's closely bound up with one's own interior life and experience. And the things that were new are getting fresh expression, at least in the 12th century in the monastic movement. Bernard was spearheading were these things like affectivity, experience, and mm -hmm. so on. And meanwhile, early scholastic philosophy, in which Bernard had some training, was moving in a somewhat different direction, greater objectivity, a more kind of proto-scientific approach, asking these kind of logical questions, raising, like Abelard was a smart aleck. He was the kid at the back of the class who's really smart, sticking up his hand and saying, <laughs> you know, like, well, what about this? And I'll have like some like logical, you know, thing that scandalizes everyone else in the class, but no one can really answer it. And the professor's, you know, scratching their head. And uh, it was actually William of St. Thierry. He was more of a theologian and he kind of flagged the problems with, with Abelard and, and Bernard became the champion. He was the more pugnacious of the two by far. But, you know, Abelard also, there's a, a great deal to admire in, in Abelard and his, in his writings. And it wasn't strictly logical games by any mm -hmm. means, yeah. but in the background is this this kind of general showdown between these two approaches to the scriptures and to the spiritual life. And I think Bernard was nervous about a rationalistic approach that would occlude the affective and the experiential dimensions of contact with God through the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I really like his particular creative reuse of origin. Another person I've encountered recently through the writings of Jordan Wood, who was also on this podcast, was Maximus, who's also taking forward um, origin in a particular way. And both of them have this idea of there is something within the human person that is the image of God for Bernard, or Maximus talks about as the logos in person, basically. That is moving through desire, for sure, in Bernard, through the will, more than through the intellect, perhaps, uh, although the, the will and love shape the intellect. And then in Maximus, through ascesis and through um, devotion to Christ, and through Christ's redemption, which I, I think Maximus sees as universal for almost all things, pulling that pull, that the image or the logos becomes manifest or is born within the person. Maximus talks about the logos being born in the person um, and, and ever more born, you know, and that transformation happening that as we participate and then 
enables you to participate in like stages and stages coming throughout. And um, it's fascinating to see, I don't know if that's an interesting comparison or not, it's just having to have read both of these guys who are fans of origin, um, one in the Latin and one in the Greek traditions. But uh, this idea seems to me like um, that as you love God, you become like God, you become Christ as you love Christ. That is um, the image, is the, the ultimate image for um, Brenner, the ultimate logos for Maximus. It brings up and calls to and brings out the um, image in each of us, um, which then is not simply a copy of of the logos or like some sort of like hive mind, but a sort of the greatest expression of freedom and identity that one could have, um, which I know Maximus talks about in terms of hypostasis. Bernard seems to be more talk talking about purely in terms of love and um, transformation. But it's, uh, for me, it was um, wonderful to read this, um, this different slant on the same kind of question. And um, I've been working through a class on the Song of Songs I'm teaching, so I'm working through Origin and Bernard on, on their commentary for each verse. And, um, and uh, Bernard's, um, as you point out in this book, because it's, it's about his poetics, right? And it's about his rhetoric. He's so, um, he's uh, sort of almost like a midwife of the image of Christ in his listeners as he's guiding you through the songs. Um, um, he's a very compelling writer, I feel like. So, um, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And um, they both certainly focus on the will and, and freedom. Yeah. And uh, they both use origin, as you say. Um, it's interesting because comparing Abelard, who's taking Aristotle and like that logical, I mean, Maximus brings about a fusion of Aristotelian and monastic mystical worlds, mm -hmm. right? This is if you were to take the best from both and, and kind of resolve them in a way that in the East that doesn't happen so well in the, in the West. You know? Interesting, interesting. They're splintering in the West, the scholastic and the mystical, not all together. I mean, it's certainly the both the Franciscan and the Dominican are very mystical for into the fourth, 14th century. And then, um, yeah. Yeah. So in that way, do, do you see Thomas in, that, in a similar way as, as combining Aristotle and mysticism or, or, or the monastic tradition? Or is he just, would you view him as more as a Aristotle and patristic? I, I would say that Aquinas was, you know, definitely had a mystical vision, although they thought that he wasn't a Christian. Oh, really? Which <laughs> <laughs> is rather great. No, she thought he was an Aristotelian. She wanted right. to make that clear that he, she didn't. Yeah, he just, doesn't count. Yeah, it doesn't count. It's not <laughs> a Christian. <laughs> I just gave a homily on the Feast of St. Thomas on Saturday yeah. and, oh. and spoke about that event at the end of his life where he yeah. said that all it's all straw. Everything yeah. I wrote, my whole life work. And, you know, I was talking about that final letting go of his whole life work and used the example of a, a larva wriggling to get out of its cocoon and apparently as it's doing that it's developing the very muscles that it will need when it to fly oh cool so it comes out with this one. so thinking as being something like that like systematic thought 
going through all of the, the problems, trying to wrap our head around all these mysteries, which we never will. Mm. But it has a function in helping us develop the, the muscles for the time when we just let all the scaffolds fall away and the trellis goes down and we just launch. I like that a lot, to pass beyond it. But you just still have to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Heather, you were talking about Vey before we came on. What was your... What's your take on Gravity and Grace? Oh, that she was a big downer. She's a big downer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll keep reading. I also, I, uh, give, you know, these are the sorts of things you come to in a particular mood and, and things stand out to you. But yeah, I was saying that I, I read her in college. It's been a long time and I really, I remember liking her a lot and then coming back to Gravity and Grace, um, the gravity felt very real and the grace didn't didn't feel like a, a living alternative um, solution to to all of the the very accurate and and sort of beautifully written observations about human life that uh, she is going through and talking about gravity and sort of the world of limited goods and how people operate out of their own self-interest and yeah it's a deterministic universe for her like it, it's very much. mechanical and it's cold and foreign and automatic and work you know you have a bunch of automatons wandering the matrix that are controlled by their <laughs> right. conditioning and uh, you know and then grace somehow pervades and illumines and opens space and opens distance but it doesn't feel very incarnate exactly times, you know? yeah it's not natural to the world she describes it's this sort of completely outside thing that then yeah but i think attention is a key you know, attention and, and seeing things as they are, somehow that is what lightens or opens up possibility within that deterministic world. You See know? the sparkles a little bit around the edges? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We, we tend to think of creation as somehow expressing God, like God chose to create the polar bear, how beautiful, or, you know, whatever, these different creatures somehow express the creativity of God. Mm -hmm. And... Her view seems to be, I, I think that it's just another way, another dimension of creativity, that it, the withdrawal, the making space, uh, sure, something came out of nothing. So there's somehow, you know, something positive to God's creation, and it's somehow expressive of the divine genius. Um, but she's just putting the accent differently, you know, on the yang rather than the yin side of the creative process. I like that. I like what you're saying there. I was talking to some friends about this tonight. I, she reminds me a little bit of Kierkegaard or Bart and their sort of theological existentialism where it's like you're not going to work. Iconoclastic. Yeah. yeah you're not going to work from, from anything here to develop a language of God or beauty. It's got to come from the word who descends and shatters all the... And yet she's so platonic and metaphysical, right? So yeah. she would make Kierkegaard or Bart scream. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> she's not them either. Yes, yes, that's true. She's, <laughs> reading, she's reading the Taoist sages and the Bhagavad Gita and Zen Buddhism and all of these things are entering into her, her thought world yeah. right alongside, uh, you know, Sophocles and uh, Iliad and all of these. Uh, it's amazing. She's yeah. such an original... And she has such profound insights for somebody in her 20s. It's unbelievable. God, she like, forgot how young she was. Yeah, she died at 34, right? Also, she was living during a very bleak part of human history. Like, that's, <laughs> we also covered that. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're allowed to see like, the negative. Yeah.
Did she live through both world wars or just, I, I actually don't know her dates. She um, did. Because certainly the second, but yeah. She died in 1943 at 34, I think, or yeah. 45 at yeah. 34, something like that. She was her life war. was mostly war. It was mostly war, yeah. yeah. Right in the thick of it too, yeah. Well, very good. Thank you uh, so much, Father Isaac, for coming and talking with us yeah, about this all great. of this. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. And um, here at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, you cannot take any classes with Father Isaac on a regular basis. <laughs> Something we always end up with. Yeah, you can take classes with people who are talking. Unless if you become yeah. a monk, you can take all yeah, the yeah. classes. <laughs> you can learn all kinds of stuff with them. We're happy to have you, Father Isaac, and uh, as a frequent guest. And we're happy to have classes we offer online and in person here in Rochester and Albany and Buffalo. Uh, thanks very much. And I hope our listening audience has a great rest of your day. Farewell. Farewell.